Welcome to another episode of the Legal Marketing Studio, the bi-weekly podcast examining best-in-class examples of branding, strategy, content, and technology in legal marketing. Each episode is devoted to a successful initiative, an innovative campaign, a promising technology, or an effective, proven strategy for developing new business at law firms from the largest international firm to the solo attorney. I'm Michael Meyer, the host of the Legal Marketing Studio. In this episode, I'm speaking with Hannon Kolko, an attorney with the firm Meyer, Swazi, English & Klein. Hannon joined Meyer Swazi in 1999 and became a member of the firm in 2003. He's an experienced litigator in labor and employee benefits law. The wide variety of his litigation practice includes the defense of no-cost, lifetime post-retirement medical benefits, the successful collection of monies due to pension funds under the control group theory, defense of unions against claimed flaws in their election procedures, and contract ratification procedures, the defense of unions against claimed violations of state and federal age discrimination claims in connection with collective bargained retirement incentive programs, and the representation of unions and retirees in high-profile bankruptcies, including the GM, Chrysler, Hostess, New York Post, and New York Daily News Chapter 11 cases. In addition to representing union clients before federal and state courts, the National Labor Relations Board and the New York State Public Employment Relations Board, he has handled hundreds of arbitration cases. Hannon is co-chair of the ABA's Labor and Employment Sections Committee on Technology and the Workplace and speaks regularly at the ABA on topics relating to the intersection of technology and the workplace. He has also spoken on NLRB-related issues in programs sponsored by the College of Labor and Employment Lawyers and Cornell University. Mr. Kolko has taught as an adjunct professor for the Cornell University School of Industrial and Labor Relations in the areas of labor law, public sector, labor law, employment discrimination, the law of workplace privacy, arbitration practice, and building trades labor law. One detail missing from that intro, and that is that Hannon was also jointly responsible for recognizing and seizing the opportunity of launching a marijuana practice at Meyer Swazi English and Klein. And it is this expansion into uncharted territories that brings him to the legal marketing studio. Hannon, welcome to the legal marketing studio. Thank you, and good afternoon. So let's just start with any necessary disclaimers. We're not giving any legal advice to other law firms or to anyone in the marijuana industry, um, correct? That is exactly right. Anything else we need to throw out there? I don't think so. We're ready to go forward. Great. I was hoping we could start uh, with a just a brief snapshot of Meyer Swazi English and Klein, what the firm looks like, how big you guys are, and sort of where you were when the marijuana practice was started. So the firm is about 57 or 58 lawyers today. And it is a firm that's got a bunch of practices in addition to the labor practice and the marijuana practice. We have a litigation practice, personal injury practice, bankruptcy practice, trust and estates. We've got some specialties. We represent uh, people in special education cases. We've got an equine law practice. We've got a great tax cert practice. And so it's a firm with a bunch of practices that I think is receptive to lawyers at the firm being entrepreneurial and looking into new practice areas. And we started the marijuana practice. The idea started about three and a half years ago, early 2013. Few of us were eating lunch in this room, and my colleague Barry Peake said, we should start a marijuana practice. And the other people in the room said, great idea. And so we were off. Just quickly a little bit more about the firm. Are you guys, what's the, the size of your firm geographically? Do you serve specifically New York City, the state, tri-state area? You know, how large and what do you guys cover? So geographically, the mothership of the firm is Garden City, New York. The firm was originally founded on Long Island. And so we've got 
about 38 or 39 lawyers in our Garden City office. And they actually represent clients in the tri-state area, primarily Nassau and Suffolk County, but also they do cases in the five boroughs and a little bit in Westchester. Obviously, we've got our New York City office, which is where I spend most of my time. And the lawyers in that office, their practice focuses primarily on the five boroughs, a little bit of Nassau and Suffolk, occasionally Westchester, Rockland, New Jersey. We've got an Albany office where we do government relations primarily, and so they work a lot with the state legislature and uh, regulatory bodies in Albany. And then we've got a government relations practice in Washington, D.C., and we represent clients before federal agencies and various federal administrative authorities. Could you speak at all about the general reputation of the firm in terms of what you're known for, what your uh, what your brand is? Sure. I think that we're known for high-quality legal services. Judge Meyer, who is the Meyer and Meyer Swazi, was a judge on the New York State Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in the state. And he was known as a judge's judge. And so I think that people try to practice law as as Judge Myers would have had us practice. And so we want to be we, we want to be right on the law when we advocate. We want to advocate as forcefully as the circumstances warrant. But we also want to be aware that our clients, whatever their needs are, they don't just want people who are pure lawyers, but they want people who can kind of offer common sense solutions that clients need. So I think that we combine high level legal skill with common sense business and practical thinking. So when three and a half years ago, when you started the, this practice, you'd mentioned, uh, it was, I'm sorry, Barry, who was- Barry Peak, my, my partner and friend. You guys were having lunch here and it, it came up. Was this a bolt of lightning idea? Had it been something that had been percolated or joked about previously? Or, you know, how did, how did it come about? I don't know whether it was a bolt of lightning idea for Barry or whether he'd been thinking about it, but the reaction that he got was excellent. And so people said to us, go forward and do it. And so whether it was a bolt of lightning, I don't know. But as soon as I saw people's reaction, I realized that there might be a possibility that we could do this, that it wasn't a crazy idea. Were, I mean, were there any particular events or news articles or anything out in the world that, that brought it up that had caused it to come to mind? Not to my knowledge. And in 2013, that was before New York State passed its Compassionate Care Act, New York State Medical Marijuana Law. And so at that point, people didn't think that New York was going to get a law. People thought that it couldn't pass our Senate. People weren't sure that the governor would sign a law. So at that point, it was in the news in New York State, but generally in the news for the notion that other states were ahead of New York State and we weren't going to get a law. Um, you know, when it first came up, it, it sounds like everyone was very excited. Were there any downsides either on the ethical end or on the brand side that you were worried about? Or was it just... You know, at the beginning, there wasn't a lot to do as far as practice because New York State didn't have its law. So there weren't clients in New York State that we were going to be able to do a lot of work for. And so for the first year, the main thing that we did was first keep abreast of what was happening in Albany look at the proposed legislation, talk to our colleagues in Albany who were following the legislation, but also really self-education. Essentially, we read law review articles, we read statutes in other states, we read regulations that other states had issued, and a couple of states had their applications online, so we were able to look at what 
people in other states had done to apply for licenses in those states. And so for about a year, it was really a process of self-education. It was reading. Which is a, a great segue to what, what does the landscape look like in this area of the law right now, what, you know, nationally and then more locally here in New York? So nationally at this point, you've still got the Federal Controlled Substances Act, which is a 1971 federal law. And under that law, and this is now uh, May of 2016, under that law, still every bit of the marijuana industry is unlawful. So the federal law makes it unlawful to grow, process, distribute, sell, and possess cannabis. That's the federal law. Despite that, at this point, 24 states and the District of Columbia have passed their own laws that one way or the other make cannabis use, possession, cultivation, processing legal as a matter of state law. And just about two weeks ago, Pennsylvania became the 24th. And so the Pennsylvania industry will ramp up in the next 18 months. In New York State, our law was signed in July of 2014. Five licensees were selected in July of 2015. And those five operators opened up dispensaries in January of 2016. So at this point, the New York industry is is getting off the ground. Now, I know there was a, a ruling in Montana that they're going to have to shut down their system. I think it was August. Are there any risks of backsliding once a state goes forward? Or is, or is the trend, once it's legalized, it's probably going to stay that way? I'm, just, I'm thinking as a, like a business risk from your perspective. That is a great question. Montana was a relatively early adapter. And at one point, 3% of the population of Montana was certified to receive medical marijuana. And for reasons, I think, unique to the Montana market, there was a legislative backlash. And so a couple of years ago, the state of Montana passed a piece of legislation that really reigned in the industry. That was challenged, and the Montana Supreme Court upheld most of that law. So at this point, Montana, the industry will be dramatically reduced and and effectively, I don't think there's going to be a commercial industry in Montana under the current situation. But the point that you get to is this. There's no guarantees. There's nothing that guarantees that just because there's been progress to date that it's inevitable. There's no inevitability. And so an investor, I think, needs to be aware, A, that state law can change for the negative, but B, that federal enforcement of the Controlled Substances Act can be changed to the negative. So there are substantial risks to investing in the industry and participating in it. Similar to that, and perhaps tangential to local concerns, on a global level, you know, the drug trade is still illegal at, you know, at the global level. The UN 1961, 1971, and 1988, they've said this is a banned substance, you know, is there a chance that this is going to change on the global level with the U.S. leader, you know, with from the state level cha- changing the federal response in the U.S. to changing a global perspective on this? I think that there's a chance that that will happen. I suspect that the way that it will work is that initially states will pass their laws. And so you've got ballot initiatives potentially in California, Maine, Nevada, Arizona, Uh, In Massachusetts, you've got potential legislative action in Vermont and Rhode Island. And so I think that in the United States, if enough states pass laws that make marijuana legal as a matter of state law, at some point the federal government 
is likely to modify its stance to allow that. Whether action by the United States will affect the UN or the international community, I don't know. I mean, a few countries have legalized marijuana. I don't think they've had a huge impact on international laws. I suspect that there is going to be bottom-up pressure from states and localities that over time will generate change, but not not instantly. So moving more towards the opportunities that probably led you to start this practice, you know, by 2020, the marijuana business is projected to be a 35 to $45 billion industry, uh, which is a lot of money. Big tobacco is facing pressure in terms of growth, and there's a chance that once things are legal, they may move into it. But as you're, you know, as, and as a medium-sized firm, a lot of the big firms that are in multiple jurisdictions are not willing to touch it either because they don't want to deal with some of the downsides or they don't want to, for whatever ethical or business reputational reasons, don't want to do it. So business-wise, for a firm like Meyer Swazi, what are the business opportunities here? I think that you have an opportunity, first of all, to get in, maybe not at the ground floor because, you know, the ground floor was established by people in California 20 years ago, but to get in at a relatively early phase to learn things and then as a law firm, there are lots of types of legal business that the cannabis industry might provide. So, for instance, there's regulatory compliance. That is, normally states have a detailed set of regulations, and so you want to work with people to help them comply with those regulations. There's transactional work. That is kind of the buying and selling of businesses or the work associated with making investments in businesses. There might be work associated with uh, real estate. That is, you might represent landlords leasing to cannabis businesses or businesses entering into leases with uh, landlords. There's potential for litigation. There's potential for bankruptcy-related work arising out of the industry. So there's a wide range of potential types of legal business that this industry can generate. And so it offers... uh, possibilities for a law firm that, that, that has the ability to, to do these types of things. Um, so so, so that, those are, I think, some of the possibilities. There's also lobbying and legislative IP work. There's a lot of stuff that this industry generates for lawyers, and it's interesting. Which is something I was going to come to later, which is the, the ability to cross-sell across multiple kinds of practice areas. But we might as well talk about that now. Okay. I was wondering, to what degree you know, the marijuana practice is seen as a separate entity within the firm? And to what degree it's seen as sort of an umbrella practice area that helps send business to other existing practice areas? Well, we work with other lawyers in the firm as is appropriate. And so, for instance, we've worked with our corporate colleagues on transactions. And now I'm working with a partner in the bankruptcy department uh, to kind of develop a piece of model legislation to provide state law remedies for distressed cannabis businesses. So I think that really, while regulatory compliance and compliance with the state's cannabis laws is a big part of it, there's lots of other pieces of law practices that can get involved. And so I view this as an opportunity to offer the wide range of practice groups that our firm has to potential clients. Did you put any processes in place for that? Or is that a, or does the firm have existing cross-selling uh, processes in place, or is this sort of a, an ad hoc kind of thing as opportunities arise? Well, we are working on getting our cross. We're working on improving our cross selling, but I think that in the cannabis practice area, it was a natural. 
That is when we had transactions that we thought we would need help from our corporate partners on. We picked up the phone and called them, and they were happy to help. I want to go back to the sort of the risk and opportunity side. We did, I want to talk about some of the risks um, because it is such a quickly changing landscape, not only on the laws governing the business itself, but also on, on the ethics side for the law firms. Are there any risks of being on the right side of the law, but not necessarily the right side of ethics rules? So there have been two main approaches to the ethics issue. And the ethics issue is whether you can, consistent with the code of ethics, advise your clients about how to operate in this business because the issue is is that every bit of business that they do violates federal law. So model code of ethics rule 1.2D forbids a lawyer from assisting a client to violate the law. When the medical marijuana business came out and lawyers wanted to assist clients and clients wanted to hire lawyers, state bar associations were confronted with the issue of, can the lawyers do this at all? Initially, a couple of state bar associations gave very useless answers. Essentially, they said, every lawyer needs to draw the line on their own as to what they can do and what they can't do. And that doesn't do, that, that doesn't do you any good. In 2011 or 2012, the Arizona bar issued an opinion that essentially said, when our state passed its law, the legislature had to have intended that lawyers operate and assist clients because A, the law is complicated, and B, there's a complicated interplay between state and federal law. So the Arizona bar said lawyers may, consistent with the Arizona Code of Ethics, advise clients on all aspects, how to form businesses, how to operate those businesses, how to comply with state law. New York State has followed that in a decision issued in September of 2014. The one caveat is this. Both the Arizona and the New York State opinions reference guidance memoranda issued by the U.S. Department of Justice. And in particular, New York State references the August 29, 2013 Cole Memoranda, which essentially gives guidance to federal law enforcement officials. The risk is, and what New York State said is, we might need to revisit if the Cole Memoranda is revised. And so nobody knows what will happen if in the next presidential administration the Cole Memoranda is revised. Nobody knows, A, how that will affect the business, but B, nobody knows how state bar authorities will address that. And so there is a certain amount of uncertainty. In a more uncertain realm, are there any risks reputationally or from a brand perspective in getting into a practice area like this? I don't know. I tend to think that it's not likely, although I'm not a branding expert. Actually, my sense is, though, that the risks would be outweighed by the positives because you're getting into a new industry, and I think it demonstrates forward thinking on the part of the law firm. So maybe there are risks. I tend to think that those risks are outweighed by the potential benefits. And some other potential upsides. Since you've started it, has it come up in terms of recruitment for the firm or in terms of visibility and getting speaking engagements? Have there been upsides that either weren't anticipated or that you had hoped would come through and did? We've certainly had a number of speaking opportunities, which is a nice thing. I work with some CLE providers, which is a nice thing. Um, As far as recruitment, 
I think that I'm not sure that it's helped specifically in recruitment, although when we interview law clerks, it's remarkable how many of them have gone on the website and paid attention to that. So I suspect that the recruitment benefits will inure to us in the future. It hasn't really happened yet, but people in law school, apparently, they think it's interesting. So that's a benefit then, maybe? I guess. All right. And then I wanted to talk about when we'd sat down initially, you talked about some of the social justice aspects of it. I was wondering if you could talk briefly about the expungement work that you're looking into in terms of once these laws change, helping out, you know, people whose convictions would no longer have been illegal in the first place and helping them reincorporate into society and, and, you know, really be able to get their lives back. That's a great question. So you've got a funny situation now where there are hundreds of thousands of Americans who have cannabis-related convictions, and those convictions kind of follow those people around like, like a bad cold. They make it harder for them to get jobs. They make it harder for them to get loans. They make it harder for them to do all sorts of things. And the real truth is, is that in almost all of those instances, those convictions were for nothing other than possessing or selling a small amount of marijuana. And those, that, that's conduct, which as the laws change in states, is less and less criminal. And so the question is, as a society, what are we going to do when we are increasingly moving towards legal marijuana, but still have hundreds of thousands of people who have these marijuana-related convictions? And look, it's great that an industry is going to grow. I hope it grows. I hope it grows responsibly. But I think it would be wrong to leave behind the hundreds of thousands of people who've got those convictions. And so ideally, there will be some statutory mechanism that will enable people with cannabis convictions to easily and simply expunge them. And so in the absence of that, I have been speaking with a few people and we're going to try to work on a project in New York State that will provide a framework for people who now have cannabis convictions to seek to get those expunged. And from a social justice point of view, look, this is a bad law. Cannabis policy and the law has failed. If the goal of America's cannabis policy was to prevent people from getting cannabis, that failed. What it did, though, was in a racially disparate way, it burdened all sorts of people, hundreds of thousands of people, with convictions that hurt their lives. And it did so primarily the people who got those convictions weren't white, middle-class, and upper-middle-class people. It was black and Latino, poor people. And so as applied, the law ended up being unfair. Whether people had an unfair intent, I have no idea. But as applied, the law was unfair. And so it's important for industry advocates to do things to change that. As you go into this business, into a landscape that is shifting on the legal side, on the ethical side, um, but there's a huge business upside. Um, are there any you know, business processes in the firm that have changed as you're trying to transition from this, um, this business that was a, a sort of an outlaw subculture to a, a one that's becoming a legitimate industry? Well, I think the first thing that the people at the firm asked was for an analysis of whether we could do it consistent with the code of ethics, and we provided an analysis. I think at this point, the firm wants to make sure that when we do retainer letters that they are kind of specific to the industry. Um, I think that I keep people at the firm abreast of, of the risks 
But I think that other than monitoring the risks and making sure that we keep up to date on the ethics issues, no, I, I think it, that it's – the important thing is to tell your clients about the risks and to tell your colleagues about the risks and to monitor changes in that and to keep your eyes open. So one a question again related to the transition from outlaw to legitimate industry. Uh, could you talk a bit about the the language that you're using in some of your contracts and documents? You know, what language do people want to use either from a, a legal standpoint or from perhaps a business or branding standpoint? Sure. I think that a lot of people in the industry are migrating to using cannabis to generally describe the product. But then also in the industry, people are trying to develop brands, and so people will try to use their brands when they describe something that's not generically cannabis. And I think that that happens both in the medical area and in the adult use area. And obviously, the brand names are going to differ depending on whether you're in a medical or adult use. And also, state law will govern the extent to which you can use brand names. And New York State is very tight on that. Other states are much looser. All right. Now, the actual last question I have that I want to close this with, having come from, out, you know, as this industry has come out of this outlaw subculture, uh, there's a lot of really colorful language. Um, do you have a favorite slang term for marijuana that you have heard either from a client or in the media out there? <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a funny thing. I'm going to be 56 in a couple of months, and so my child always tells me how old I am. Apparently, the phrases that I learned when I was 15, pot and weed, as my kid says, dad, only old people say them. So no, you know, it's funny. I, 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 I still use the old phrases, and I have not heard too many of the new ones. I was, I was told recently that a phrase that people use to describe marijuana is trees, and, and I had never heard that, but apparently that's out there. No, you know, look, 55-year-olds, I think that, that I'm, I'm trying to keep up more with developments in the law, and I'm probably two generations removed from the current slang for, for whatever's out there. Uh, super. Uh, well, Hannon, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Legal Marketing Studio podcast. The Legal Marketing Studio is a production of Picture More Business. The theme music was composed by Ryan Knock of Knock It Out Music. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe. The Legal Marketing Studio can be found on iTunes and on SoundCloud. Extended content, including photographs and links, can be found on our website, legalmarketing.studio. Note that there's no .com there. It's just legalmarketing.studio. If you'd like to appear on the Legal Marketing Studio or know someone who might, please send an email to producer at legalmarketing.studio or reach out via the contact page on our website, legalmarketing.studio. That's all for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.